everybody. Welcome back. And today we are talking about managing intracranial pressures, also known more commonly in the clinical setting as ICP. So you're going to be concerned about your patient's ICP when you're taking care of anyone who has a neurological injury. And when I say neurological injury, I don't just mean someone who has a gunshot wound or got hit on the head or fell. What we're talking about is anything that is outside of normal within the, the brain. So this could be a space occupying lesion like a tumor or an abscess hydrocephalus, which causes severe brain swelling, intracranial hemorrhage, which is bleeding within the, the brain space, uh, subdural or epidural hematomas, and even severe hyponatremia. So basically anything that's a key player in what is referred to as the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. You may have heard of this before. This is a doctrine that basically says there's three things inside your skull cavity, your brain, your blood, and your CSF. Now, remember that the skull is a fixed compartment, so it's not gonna expand and contract as the brain swells, or as blood volume in the brain goes up, or as CSF increases in volume. So what this doctrine states is that the volume of these three things, the blood, the brain, and the CSF is always constant. So if one goes up, one or both of the other two must go down to maintain this constant steady state. So, for example, let's say you've got a subdural hematoma and it's taking up a fair amount of space. What's going to happen? Well, your CFS is going to go down and the brain is going to decrease in volume, meaning it is going to get squished. And that's when you'll see things like uh, smaller ventricles on a CT scan, or even a midline shift where that midline of the brain is shifted off to the side. Never a good sign. Um, if the brain has a lot of edema, you'll see edema in traumas, you'll see edema in hyponatremia, you'll see edema in anoxic brain injury, then the blood in the CFS is going to be decreased. So when blood is decreased, then you're worried about perfusion. So your role as the nurse, as you're managing your ICP, is to always keep perfusion in mind. And you want to keep perfusion to the brain going despite whatever else is happening with your patient. So talking about perfusion, you really want to pay attention to something called your cerebral perfusion pressure. And that's also known by an acronym, which is CPP. And to calculate this, you're going to take CPP to equal your MAP minus your ICP. So MAP, remember, is your mean arterial pressure. So take your MAP, let's say it's 80, and subtract your ICP, say it's 20, then your cerebral perfusion pressure will be 60. So you typically want your cerebral perfusion pressure or your CPP to be above 60 and your ICP to be below 20. So note that in a normal healthy adult, going on about their daily business, a normal ICP is 7 to 15. When there's brain trauma, 
any kind of neurological injury, we typically don't start doing interventions until the ICP gets above 20. Usually your MD orders will be to maintain ICP below 20. Sometimes you'll see maintain below 25. Um, if it gets up into the 30s, 40s, that's when you're going to be doing emergent surgery, emergent procedures of some kind to get that ICP down. So we're going to start with the basics of ICP management. And these are things that as the nurse, you can do just as you're taking care of your patient, as you're going about your, your um, just going about your shift. So with anybody with a neurological injury, you want to keep the CSF flowing optimally. So what you'll do to ensure that is you're going to maintain the neck in a neutral alignment. So, you know, if you see patients in the hospital, if you've been in the clinical setting, people, will, their heads will fall over to the side a lot. You wanna maintain that neck in a very neutral alignment. You wanna keep the head of the bed at 30 degrees. Uh, studies have been done that show that 30 degrees is kind of the optimal amount. Any higher than that, and you're starting to get flexion at the hips that is too severe, um, which you wanna also avoid is severe flexion at the hips. This increases your interabdominal, intrathoracic pressure, which in turn increases ICP. Um, if your patient's in a C-spine collar, that's great because that does keep the neck in neutral alignment. But if it's really tight, you wanna make sure that it is uh, not impeding CSF flow or blood flow. So you might consider loosening it a bit, but still keeping it so that it maintains neutral neck alignment. Of course, you would uh, discuss this with the MD before you loosened any C-spine collars. You wanna keep your patient normothermic. When there is brain injury, the thermoregulation center in the brain really gets thrown out of whack. You'll see what's called neurofevers. These are fevers that are often refractory to treatment and very, very difficult to control. Um, in my experience, neurofevers that are difficult to control respond better to external cooling, such as ice packs in the groin or axilla or cooling blankets. Um, Tylenol works, in my experience, better given as a suppository than down, for instance, say an NG or an OG tube. Um, IV Tylenol tends to work pretty well. But just know that the thermoregulation center in the brain is going to get thrown out of whack. Um, also, of course, you do have risk for infection if there was any kind of penetrating trauma or some other source of infection going on with your patient. Maybe they've had surgery, maybe they've got catheters and IV lines and things like that. So know that fever could be because of neuro injury, could be a neuro fever, or it could be because of infection, because of everything else that you're doing to the patient. If you are cooling your patient very aggressively with cooling blankets or ice packs and they start to shiver, you want to stop those interventions right away. Shivering increases ICP pretty substantially. So be very watchful for that. Um, patients who absolutely have to maintain a normal temperature and external cooling is the only thing that's working. If they are shivering, you will most likely be paralyzing these patients to prevent that shivering from happening. And we'll talk a little bit more about paralyzing later on. Something else that is done, it's not as common as it used to be, and it's a little bit controversial, but it's uh, induced hyperventilation. This would be on your patient who's on a ventilator. 
and you would turn up the rate on the vent to hyperventilate them. It is used really only in critical situations. Like say that ICP got up to the 30s, 40s and you needed to get it down right away. You could hyperventilate the patient for a very short period of time to get the ICP down. And why this works is because if you remember from your uh, physiology class that CO2 is a very, very potent vasodilator. So as you blow off the CO2 through hyperventilating them, we lower the, the CO2 in the body, and this leads to arterial vasoconstriction, which it's going to lower cerebral blood flow and cerebral blood volume, but it is also going to lower the ICP. So uh, an example of this that I saw recently in the clinical setting was I took care of a patient with a very severe subraphnoid hemorrhage and we needed to turn the sedation off. We typically would do a sedation holiday once a shift or once a day, depending on the MD's preferences. And you, the reason you want to turn off sedation in a neuro patient is to try to get a true neuro exam, a true neuro response out of this patient. The family was facing the uh, difficult decision of whether to withdraw care. And so we really wanted to get an accurate idea of what this, this gentleman could do without any sedation on board and his ICPs were above 20 during that time. And what happened was we turned off all the sedation and his normal respiratory drive took over. And his body's natural physiological response was to get that ICP down. So he began breathing 40 to 50 times per minute with this extreme uh, accessory muscle use that um, if we had not aborted the holiday and gone back onto sedation, then, you know, he would have tired out eventually and would have coded definitely. So um, just to see that natural physiological hyperventilation response was pretty interesting though. It was actually really kind of difficult to watch. And um, we even thought about paralytics for a brief period because it did take quite a while, even after the sedation came back on to get his breathing pattern to normalize. So anyway, that is why hyperventilation gets ICP down. So let's say you've done all of those things for your patient and their ICPs are still in the 20 to 25 range. Well, you're going to call your doc and you're going to let them know that you're not able to keep them below parameter of below 20. And if they're not already sedated, then they will be adding sedation. Propofol is commonly used. And um, the thing with propofol is that it's also going to reduce your blood pressure and your mean arterial pressure or your MAP. And if you remember your CPP calculation, CPP is MAP minus ICP, right? So as your MAP goes down, your ICP is also going to go down, but your cerebral perfusion pressure is probably also going to go down. So it can be very much a tightrope to walk to adequately sedate your patient without dropping their blood pressure too much, but keeping their ICPs under control. Um, something that I didn't mention on the blog post on the website is that pain control, um, you would also have something going for pain, a fentanyl drip, morphine drip, something like that to deal with any pain, especially if it is a traumatic injury or a subarachnoid hemorrhage, those people have uh, severe, severe headaches. Another drug that you could be using is called mannitol, and mannitol decreases ICP through osmotic diuresis. It's very uh, hyperosmolar. It looks very much like a uh, salt water when it when you use it, you'll notice it's kind of messy. <laughs> the drops will get everywhere and they'll crystallize and they'll look like you've dropped really, really, really 
um, concentrated salt water all over the floor of your patient's room. So if you see those little white little dots here and there, suspect that, oh, that's probably the mannitol. So because it's so osmolar, it's going to pull fluid from the cellular space and place it into the vascular space where it then can be excreted in the urine. So mannitol is usually ordered Q4, Q6 hours. You'll have to check a serum osmolality before every dose. Um, Surgeons will typically write orders to hold the mannitol if the serum osmol is greater than like 320 is what I've seen most common, though I did see 310 recently. Um, find out from your lab how long it takes them to run an osmol. The place where I work, it takes them about an hour, about 50 to 60 minutes. So if I've got mannitol and it's Q6 hours and my next dose is at noon, I'm going to pull that osmol around 11 so that I get my result back so that I know by noon if I can give the mannitol should I need to. Another um, hypertonic solution, hyperosmolar solution that you will give pretty regularly with these patients is hypertonic saline. The most common one I've seen is 3%, and that will run at no more than 30 mils an hour. That is key, key, key. You do not ever, ever, ever run 3% or 4% or any hyperosmolar saline at a rate higher than 30 mils per hour. And I've never run 4% before. It might actually be lower than 30 mils per hour, but 3% is the one that I've seen most often and 30 mils an hour is the max dose on this. This is a very, very, very high alert medication. You will be monitoring serum sodium levels to ensure that it doesn't get too high as you're giving this. And I would say probably about every four hours you would be checking a serum sodium level. Um, you also wanna label the heck Okay, label the heck out of your 3% line. Um, you do not want anyone coming into the room and bolusing that hypertonic saline. If the saline levels rise too quickly, then the patient can get what is called locked-in syndrome where they are completely aware of the world around them and their brain works fine. They can blink their eyes, but they cannot move any other part of their body and it is very bad and permanent and awful. So hypertonic saline, very high alert medication. Be careful with that. It's going to work pretty much the same way as the mannitol. Um, it's going to pull fluid into the vascular space, which will decrease cerebral edema and your patient's ICP. Um, say you've been doing those things and their ICPs are still kind of high. Um, you may paralyze your patient. We talked about this briefly before. Um, I did this very recently uh, with a, a medication called Vecuronium. If your patient is on VEC, as they call it, then they have to be sedated just because it would be the height of cruelty to be paralyzed and be aware of it. So you want to sedate adequately your paralyzed patient. Um, something that we use in my unit to monitor for adequate sedation is called a sedline monitor. And I've just started using this monitor. I don't know a ton about it, but it is super cool. And it attaches small electrodes to the forehead and it reads the brain activity in the frontal lobe. And you can tell by the waveform on the monitor and a, a score, an index score of how sedated your patient is. And I forget what the range was. It's, it's a very new machine to me, but you want your patient within a certain range for their level of sedation. It is a super cool thing. So you want your patients to be monitored for sedation if you have that on your unit. And then you will be doing train of four or twitch response every hour. And what this does is you, it's a little square box with two little knobs on the end. And what you do is you place this against the trigeminal nerve and you set it to train of four and you turn it on 
And what you're watching for is as this machine bursts, it bursts four times, four small little electrical bursts. And you're watching for how many twitches you see at that trigeminal nerve. And it's like right around there, right around the eye. So as it bursts four times, your goal is for the patient to twitch twice out of four bursts. So what you're gonna be doing is titrating your vecuronium drip or your paralytic drip to get a train of four, that is two out of four. So if you're getting four bursts, you're gonna titrate the drip up, check it again, um, and titrate again as needed. If you're only getting one burst, then you're gonna titrate your drip down. I did see just very recently that we were titrating our vecuronium to an ICP that was a little bit out of the ordinary for me typically it's to a train of four two out of four but you may see it to an icp of less than 20 or 25. Um, the thing with paralytics is that you want to lose use sorry the absolute minimum amount to keep your patient at that two to four two out of four response um, these drugs can have long-term uh, side effects that aren't aren't that great for your patient so it's really all not something that you would do lightly putting your patient on a paralytic uh, another big thing that you might do with pharmacology is put your patient into a barbiturate coma. Barbiturates are heavy, heavy, heavy drugs. Basically, this is a medically induced comatose state that greatly reduces brain activity um, and is a way to manage ICP. Um, this is pretty much only used in patients for whom you've tried everything else. And you might see commonly uh, phenobarbital or pentobarbital. I have not yet taken care of a patient in a barbiturate coma. Um, it comes with a whole protocol of things that you have to look out for and watch out for. Um, but this would be pretty much the last medication that you would add on to try to keep their ICPs down. Another medication that you might use that doesn't necessarily decrease ICP, but that maintains an adequate cerebral perfusion pressure are vasopressors. So remember earlier we talked about the propofol, how it can drop your MAP, and then though your ICP comes down, well, your MAP came down, so now your cerebral perfusion pressure isn't quite high enough. So uh, vasopressors will be used to keep the MAP up so that you have an adequate cerebral perfusion pressure, especially when using sedatives I remember a patient I had who had a MAP goal of 100. So he was on three different vasos to keep it up. I think he was on uh, neosinephrine, levofed, and um, vasopressin to keep his MAP at 100. So um, if you're having a lot of trouble keeping your ICP down with an adequate cerebral perfusion pressure, ask if you want the patient to be placed on a vasopressor and you will feel like you are walking a hemodynamic tightrope a lot of the time when you're taking care of these patients for whom ICP is a bit of a challenge. So let's say you've been doing all of those things and your patient still has an elevated ICP. So they're obviously very, very sick. And this is where neurosurgery is really going to come into play. Um, a lot of patients that you will see will have neurosurgical intervention. And one of the most common is a craniotomy or a decompressive craniotomy. So in this surgery, a portion of the skull is removed. The surgeon goes in there, takes out blood, takes out a clot, takes out a tumor, takes out an abscess, takes out a bullet, whatever, and replaces the skull flap and the patient comes back to the ICU. Um, if they anticipate the brain swelling, then what they will do is called the decompressive craniectomy, or you may hear it called a craniotomy with a flap. And in this, the bone flap is taken off, 
the intervention is done, and the skull is not replaced. Used to be they put them in the patient's abdomen so that the bone would stay vascularized as the, as the brain healed, but it sounds like nowadays they're just putting them in the freezer and they will replace that uh, skull flap once the swelling subsides. So you want to be very careful when you're repositioning these patients. Anyone with a craniectomy should have a sign at the head of the bed that they are missing part of their skull. Um, you would never turn them onto the side with the skull flap missing. When you're moving their head, just be very careful where you, uh, where you handle them because there is a brain literally right underneath their skin. Uh, something else you might see is a burr hole. This is not as invasive as a craniotomy. The hole, you know, they don't remove a whole big section of the skull. They just remove it. They place a hole in the skull to remove a clot or something that's right there um, near the surface. And then the other thing that you will see is a EVD, extraventricular drain placement. And a lot of times your craniotomy, craniectomy patients will come back with an EVD in place. And what this is, is the drain that is placed into the ventricle. And the nice thing about this is that you can measure ICPs. You can drain CSF as a way to keep your ICP within range. Um, I will probably do a whole entire post about EVDs. They are super cool um, and also a little bit complicated and a very, again, a very high alert type of device. So the main takeaway that I want you to have here with an EVD is that you would never, ever, ever, ever let it drop below the ordered height. Um, this can overdrain the ventricle and lead to ventricular collapse, which would be very bad for your patient. So if you have a patient with an EVD, they are going to have strict do not move head of bed without nurse present signage in the room. If um, someone's coming in the room to do any kind of intervention, uh, say speech, speech therapy is coming in to do a swallow eval and they want to set the patient up, you need to be in the room. You need to manage closing off the EVD, repositioning the patient, re-leveling the EVD, and then reopening it. Um, never, ever let the patient move, get up, walk around, sit down, stand up without you present because you have to very carefully monitor the height at which that device is hanging in comparison to where it is leveled, which is the external auditory meatus, which is basically the tragus of the ear, that little thing that people get pierced sometimes on the front of their ear. So basically, those are the highlights for how you will manage your ICP in a neuropatient. Again, it starts with the basic things of maintaining neutral neck alignment, keeping the head of the bed at 30 degrees, avoiding severe flexion at the hips, loosening anything tight, especially tight C collars, keeping them normothermic, hyperventilating, controversial, maybe only used in extreme situations. You're going to sedate them. You might be giving them mannitol or hypertonic saline. Again, pain medication, um, barbiturate comas, paralytics, and vasopressors to keep their MAP up high enough. And then the other things would be surgical intervention. So that is the down and dirty of managing ICP in your relatively too super sick neuro patient. And if you want to, if you're more of a, a reading type of learner, you can check this out at straightynursingstudent.com. Just do a search for ICP and it should come right up. And if you're in nursing school or thinking about starting nursing school and you're struggling or you're looking for the best possible 
leg up on how to get through it with your sanity and your GPA intact, check out my book, Nursing School Thrive Guide, which is available on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and you search for Nursing School Thrive Guide, you'll see it. And you can also find it on my on the website. Across the top, there is a... I believe it's under resources. If you look under resources, you'll see a Thrive Guide there. So anyway, hope that helps you guys. And if you have any feedback or want to tell me about a neuro patient that you got to take care of in clinical, send us an email. Okay. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Be safe out there. This podcast is a production of straightanderson